Hello and welcome to the Backtracker History Show with me, Alice. Join me as I go delving through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. From tales of pirates and privateers to murderers, tragic accidents to wartime escapades, this podcast has it all. And this episode is no exception, so get ready to give your ears a treat and maybe learn a few things on the way. This particular show will be featuring the tales of highwaymen, the thieves who terrorised the highways and byways of England and were treated like celebrities. The idea of robbing travellers along roads is a very old one. In the Middle Ages, there were plenty of outlaws ready to rob those that ventured out. The golden age of the highwayman was 1650 to 1830, with the peak in the second half of the 18th century. At that time, trade and commerce were increasing and there were many well-to-do travellers. It turns out Gloucestershire was a popular spot for them. There may not have been a standing police force in England at the time, but there were thief-takers, parish constables and the army. Even worse, there were other highwaymen, and they were prone to robbing and informing on each other. If they were caught, they were likely to be hanged and their bodies gibbeted. As robbery on the King's Highway and drawing a pistol both carried the death sentence. Despite the grisly fate that awaited them, they were given superstar treatment allowed visitors, and drank in jail. And as for their farewell speeches on the gallows, well, they could attract crowds of thousands. The last highwaymen to be hanged were Matthew and Henry Pinnell. In Gloucester Jail on the 12th of April, 1829. They had been arrested in Salisbury for attacking James Kersey, Matthew, aged 34, was described as being a fine-looking, tall man with a long, oval face and a prominent aquiline nose. His general appearance was that of a respectable farmer. His younger brother, Henry, aged 28, was a much shorter man with a low forehead and a very forbidding sort of scowl on his face. During the trial, James Kiersey, the victim, said, I am a farmer residing at Rod Martin. I was at Tetbury Market on the 17th of December, 1828. I left Tetbury between 7 and 8 o'clock, on horseback. I was quite sober. My way lay four miles along Sirencester Road. I had to pass two clumps of firs when the two prisoners rushed out upon me. The taller man, Matthew Pinnell, seized my horse's bridle, and the shorter, Henry Pinnell, struck me repeatedly on the head with a stick. It was not a very large stick, but it had a knob at the end of it. In the scuffle, the taller man said, Stop and deliver. I got up to run away, but my foot slipped and I fell, and the shorter prisoner beat me on the head. I begged of them not to murder me, as I had a large family and wife. The taller man said, I won't murder you if you give up what you have. If not, there is this for you. And he presented the muzzle of something the size of a large cavalry pistol. The shorter man said, Make haste. 
I unbuttoned my top coat and he took my money out of my pocket. It was in a pocketbook. The money consisted of four £5 notes of the Tetbury Bank and 40 notes of £1 each, which were, I believe, all of the same bank. The short man then searched my pockets and took some silver and a key. The short man then ran away through a field and the taller man went down to the road. It was a very moonlit night and I saw the persons plainly. I'm quite sure that the prisoners are the men. The shorter prisoner had a light brown jacket like a stable coat. The other had a jacket of a darker colour. I sent for Mr Warner, the surgeon. Mr Charles Warner, the surgeon, stated that he did indeed tend to Kiersey's injuries, consisting of three or four head wounds, the most severe being above the right ear. Word of the Week And this week it's my pleasure to give you... Valor, which is basically another term for Dutch courage. You know, the boldness or courage you feel when you've had a few to drink. At the Pinnell Brothers trial, there were several witnesses. One of them, Zebulon Harewood, said, I live at the inn called Troubled House. The prisoners were there from the 17th of December, which was the day Lord Liverpool's funeral passed my house. The prosecutor rode by, and I heard the prisoner, Matthew Pinnell, say that it would be no sin to take a little money from the farmers. Another witness, Thomas Johnson, said, I live at Wooden Under Edge, which is 13 miles from Trouble House. I saw the prisoners on the day following their labouring for me. They asked me to drink, and they showed me bills and notes. The prisoner, Matthew, showed me a Tetbury note, and the other prisoner showed me six or seven notes of one pound each. They asked me for what amount the notes were. This occurred at the Swan Public House. One of the last witnesses at the trial of Matthew and Henry Pinnell was John Hobbs, who spoke of how he came by the brothers and took them into custody. I saw the prisoners on the 27th of December. In consequence of some information, I went to the prisoners and told them that someone wanted to see them. They went a little way with me and then would go no further with me. I took the shorter one by the collar and said, You are my prisoner. And with some assistance, I took him. The prisoner Matthew ran away. The prisoner Henry was searched and some silver and gold and some Tetbury noted were found in his possession and also the watch which I now produce. Each brother denied any knowledge of the robbery. But after Mr Justice James Park summed up the evidence, the verdict came back as guilty. The death sentence was passed and the judge implored them to make the best of their remaining days. Matthew appeared unmoved by the verdict, but Henry said coolly, My lord, I have one favour to ask of you, and that is you will order my body to be delivered up to my mother. A little after 12 on Saturday the 12th of April, 1829, the pair were brought out onto the little platform over the gateway of Gloucester Prison, where they spent a short time in prayer before they were hanged using the then new drop. 
Unfortunately, things didn't go smoothly, because at the instant before the drop, Henry turned to his older brother to say something, and this resulted in a change of position of the knot of the rope, which caused a somewhat more agonising death. Also, at the same time as the drop, a hardened criminal was working his way through the large crowd that came to watch. He was caught trying to rob a bystander of his watch and was immediately placed in the county jail. Half an hour after the drop fell, several heavy peals of distant thunder were heard. But this didn't deter the large crowd, many of whom were women who wanted to touch the bodies once they were cut down, believing that it was a cure for some disease. As for James Kiersey, the victim, he passed away at the grand old age of 94 in October 1880. Word on the street. This week, we're looking at Baldwin Street, right in the very heart of Bristol. This was the site of St Baldwin's Cross, an ancient shrine, also of Baldwin's Cross Mill, before the river was diverted. The present street was built in the 1880s, but the former street dated back to ancient times. There is a source that says that a tract of land was granted to Baldwin Albus, The present street is built on the site of the old one. It seems quite obvious that most highwaymen operated around the rich capital of London or the surrounding roads. However, Gloucestershire was also a popular haunt, primarily on the routes to London, like what is now called the A40 and the A417, joining the Bath to London route and south to Bristol, to meet the Bristol to Bath and London Road. And this was the area used by the Dunstan brothers, whose names, and I kid you not, were Tom, Dick and Harry. They were young gentry who were related to Fulbrook Manor and turned to crime. They were known as the Burford Highwaymen. The brothers began their life of crime by robbing farmers of stock and money as they travelled to market and they would hide the stolen livestock in the local Witchwood Forest. The eldest was Richard, or Dick, and he was born in 1745. So what brought the brothers to the attention of the law? Well, it was their robbery of the Oxford Mail, which netted them a total of £500, which in those days was a fortune. And although the authorities had their suspicions, they did not have enough evidence to arrest them until, that is, someone tipped off the constable that the brothers were planning a raid on Tangley Hall. The brothers attempted to rob Tangley Hall in Oxfordshire, two miles outside of Burford, but the owners had been tipped off, and as Dick put his arm through an opening in the door to remove the bolt, the people waiting inside grabbed it and tied it to the bolt so that Dick could not pull back. He shouted to his brothers, Cut! Cut! And one of his brothers withdrew his sword and severed off the arm at the elbow. After they made their escape, it was rumoured they went to the Merrymouth Inn, where their requests for help were refused, and they then shot the innkeeper and left him for dead. The brothers fled and Dick was never seen or heard of again, and is believed to have died from his injuries. 
The two remaining brothers, Tom and Harry, joined the crowds of villagers and sightseers at the Burford Whitsuntide Festival in Caps Lodge in 1784, having ridden over from their cave in Tangley Wood. They were dressed very much like country gents, but everyone still feared them. Even so, they had money to spare and took part in the gambling scene, which they were quite addicted to. This time it was in the summer house in Caps Lodge Inn. It's not known what started it, but others in the game felt that some cheating was going on. And due to the fact that more and more of the brothers' accomplices came in and were surrounding the table, they naturally felt quite intimidated. And so efforts were made to eject the brothers from the inn. The barman at the time was William Harding, who had a few harsh words with them, which turned into a physical fight with Harry, who shot him, breaking his arm. Even with a broken arm, William still managed to hold on to Harry, so Harry fired again, this time hitting William in the chest. It was then that Perkins and Osler ran up and kicked Harry's legs, making him fall to the ground. Perkins then turned his attention to Tom, who had rushed to his brother's aid with his weapons ready. Perkins knocked him senseless with just one blow to the head. The landlord then joined in to help his colleagues. He was also shot, though a halfpenny in his waistcoat pocket saved his life, and both brothers were subdued and delivered to the Gloucestershire jail. The pistols were kept by the landlord's family as a memento of the event. William Harding, the one who was shot first, was in a very bad way. His daughter, who was a young girl at the time, altered the waistcoat he had been wearing at the time of the shooting to fit herself, and whenever she wore it, she would often point out the bullet holes. She would continue to wear the waistcoat well into old age, even when it was just rags. It was several weeks later that William Harding died from his wounds and the brothers were tried for his murder and convicted. The sentence on these desperate fellows who had long been a terror to the country where they lived, as the judge summed it up, was death by hanging and their bodies to be hung in chains thereafter. On the morning of the execution, Harry was still trying to keep his brother's spirits up he vainly stated that Thomas was an innocent party in all this, and when that failed, he started with humour. As Thomas was being pinioned, Harry turned to him and said, Come, Tom, you have but one leg, but you have but very little time to stand. Even after death, they caused quite a stir in their favourite pub, the George Inn in Burford. Twenty-four hours after their execution, a cart and horses stopped at the inn, the driver wanted a glass of beer. The landlord was more than cordial and then noticed a commotion outside and a huge crowd growing. It turned out that in the cart, laying on their backs, were the bodies of Tom and Harry, with their legs hanging over the tailboard. Their bodies were on their way to be hanged again from an oak gibbet tree on the edge of Witchwood Forest, which was once their refuge. On the bark was cut H.D., T.D. 1784. 
The bodies of the two brothers were found many decades later in a disused quarry where they had rested ever since being taken down from that tree. Another Gloucestershire highwayman was Daniel Neal, who had operated on the roads between Bath, Tetbury, Malmesbury and Sirencester. Neil was captured when he stopped to have his horse shod at the blacksmith's shop in Charlford Bottom and was found to have a brace of loaded pistols and eight guineas in his pocket. On his way to Gloucester Jail with the constable, they stopped at the George Inn Bisley, where a crowd gathered to see the highwayman. One of the men he had robbed that morning recognised him and said he would give evidence against him. When Neil heard this, he realised that his fate was sealed, and to avoid the gallows, he cut his own throat. He did not succeed in killing himself and was hanged in over near Gloucester in 1763. If someone has COVID-19, they breathe it out in particles, particles that linger in the air like smoke. But one in three people who have the virus have no symptoms and could be breathing it onto others without knowing. So when you go out, wear a face covering in enclosed busy spaces to help reduce the amount of COVID-19 particles in the air. Stop COVID-19 hanging around. A man in Bristol has gone to the courts today complaining about a doctor. He said he went to the appointment and told the doctor that he had wind. The doctor promptly gave him a kite. Back in the day facts. We'll first start off with January the 15th, 1759, when the British Museum was first opened to visitors. But not just any visitors. They were a bit worried about damage to the collections by the unruly hordes, so the trustees decided that nobody would be admitted without a ticket. The problem was that only a few tickets were issued each day, and even then a number of obstacles had to be surmounted before prospective visitors could enter. They had to go to the museum and apply to the porter for a ticket. If approved, they then had to go back on another day to collect it and then go back again at an appointed time to be allowed in. All tickets were free, but designated for a particular time. Visitors were taken around in groups of five, each group guided by one of the under-librarians. They were taken around the building very quickly to make way for the next party. On the 16th of January, 1749, there was a hoax article advertising fictitious theatrical performer The Bottle Cundra. This drew huge crowds to the Haymarket Theatre in London, but when The Bottle Cundra didn't appear, a riot ensued. It's alleged the Duke of Montague perpetrated the fiasco to win a bet. On the 17th of January, 1976, I Write the Songs by Barry Manilow hits number one. On the 18th of January, 1788, the first elements of the first fleet carrying 736 convicts from England to Australia arrives at Botany Bay to set up a penal colony. 
and on the 19th of January 1977, snow falls in Miami, Florida. This is the only time in the history of the city that snowfall has occurred. By the way, it also fell in the Bahamas. And on the 20th of January 1785, Samuel Ellis advertises to sell Oyster Island. There were no takers. Oyster Island had become a public execution site for pirates, with executions occurring at one tree in particular, the Gibbet Tree, before it was purchased by Samuel Ellis, a colonial New Yorker and merchant, possibly from Wales, in 1774. And it's from Samuel that the island got its more famous name, Ellis Island. Eventually it was passed to the United States on June 30th, 1808, for $10,000, and used as part of the country's military fortifications with the building of Fort Gibson. Smooth Criminal There by Michael Jackson, released in 1987. Now here's something I recently found out about the song. When it asks about Annie Are You OK, it's actually about Resussy Annie, an industry standard resuscitation doll that Jackson had been learning CPR on. Trainees are taught to ask Annie Are You OK while performing CPR on the dummy. And as for that particular dummy, the story behind that is fascinating in itself. The CPR dummy was created by Peter Safer and Asmund Leardell in 1958 and was used starting in 1960 in numerous CPR courses. For this reason, the face has been called the most kissed face of all time. But whose face is it? Actually, we'll never know, because it's based on the face of the unknown woman of the Seine, an unidentified young woman whose death mask became a popular fixture on the walls of artists' homes after 1900. Her visage appeared in numerous literary works, and in the United States, the mask is also known as La Belle Italienne. The story goes that the body of the young woman was pulled out of the River Seine at the Quai Le Louvre in Paris around the late 1880s, and since the body showed no signs of violence, suicide was suspected. A pathologist at the Paris morgue was, according to the story, so taken by her beauty that he felt compelled to make a wax plaster cast or death mask of her face And in the following years, many copies were made and produced. The copies quickly became a fashionable, yet morbid fixture in Parisian bohemian society, with her smile being compared to that of the Mona Lisa. Now I'd like to take a moment to thank those who really brought the story to life. And in this particular show, we had Max Berry and Steve Shepherd from Bradley Soap Radio, Joe Wilson and Molly Jeffries from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Tony Allen. So thank you, one and all. Thank you for listening to the Backtracker History Show podcast with me, Alice. This has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. 
And if you'd like to support the show with a donation, however small, you can go to ko-fi.com, spelt K-O hyphen F-I. And if you're interested in buying merchandise featuring the show's logo, then pop over to tpublic.com, where you'll find lots of things to choose from. And if you want to get in touch with me, it's perfectly easy. You'll be able to find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking for at BacktrackerUK, with a capital B, a capital T, and a capital UK. Or you can email me direct at info at backtracker.co.uk. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>